welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this edition of the Net Positive Podcast features a conversation with Angelina Galitova. She's the chair of the Board of Governors of the California Independent System Operator. Some years ago, Angelina and I worked together at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Hey, Angelina. Hey, Ted, can you hear me? I can hear you. I can't see you, but I hear you. All right, all right. Hold on, I'll run up here. You what? Yes. Oh, there you are. Oh, you have a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful backdrop, too. I know. I wish we were there, but yeah, it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can take it off. No, don't take it off. It looks great. Okay. It looks, it looks it's great. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Where is that? Where is that? I have no idea. It's a stock photo somewhere, I think, Malibu. Yeah, it's just absolutely, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> you can see the fire road, so it's in California, but north from us. Yeah, the water looks awfully clear, too. Let's go all the way back and talk about you and how you came to America. And let's go all the way back to your roots. You're, <laughs> let's go all the way back to Bulgaria. Well, you want to go even further back, all the way back to Africa? <laughs> okay. Is that where you were born, in Africa? No, I was raised there. Um, so I was born in Bulgaria, but when I was nine, almost 10, we went to Africa. My dad was an engineer. My mother is a literature professor. And we lived there for five, well, and then the summers for another two, three years. So my formative years were spent in Tanzania, East Africa. We traveled to Kenya, too, because my dad was in charge of building rock crushing factories. That Then those rocks were used to build the roads. We moved around a lot. So I grew up in, in Tanzania with no electricity and no running water. And when we were connected to the utility Tedesco, you know, we had running water and electricity two or three hours a day, usually between the hours of 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning. And that's when you also had water. So it had to be pumped um, and, and your bathtubs filled and, and everything else. But it was an idyllic childhood. We loved it. We ran around everywhere. We saw wild animals. We were chased by elephants. <laughs> and it was phenomenal. Um, and I tried to go back as much as I can. So I went back to Europe, Bulgaria to finish high school, um, started college, and then Chernobyl had happened um, early on. And I wasn't able to understand you know, how come energy can have such a profound effect on the environment and people's health? And then the love I had of renewables that developed in Africa, because, you know, somebody would bring a few solar panels in to connect them to a water pump and lo and behold, you've got water and you've got light. <laughs> that was pretty exciting that we saw in our, in our schools and the schools were remote missionary schools, so having light was uh, an exciting event as well. Um, and uh, and then going back and, and figuring out how our source of electricity that I associated with sunlight and, and an ability to touch the wires, pull on them and kick at the, at the, not only the panel, but also the pipe and the water that brought so much good instantaneously can also be something that has such a devastating effect on a global scale. And so I had 
gone back to Europe wanting to study international relations and transition to wanting to focus on energy because A, it was the most capital intensive industry of all. It didn't respect boundaries. You can't tell, okay, this is the boundary of Bulgaria. You're not going to pollute this country skip over us. And uh, why don't you dump the radiation somewhere else? We kind of are all affected. And if you want to have an impact on, on a global scale, on the economy and on politics too, um, seemed like energy was the right way to go. So I decided I wanted to study energy and particularly energy law because I wasn't that good at math and engineering. <laughs> so I figured regulatory schemes and regulations were the way to go. And uh, I ended up in, in New York and uh, was lucky to be the first Eastern European accepted in a full-time law school program. I went to PACE, which yesterday I just got the notice again, was yet again ranked number one environmental law program in the nation. And was, was uh, Dick Ottinger still there when you were at PACE? He's still there. He was my mentor. And, and, and David, <laughs> David Woolley was probably there. David uh, Woolley was there too. I worked with both of them in the energy sector. So yes, yeah, that's what yeah. you know put me on the, on the road to, well, if you really want to be impactful in energy, okay. you have to know utilities. Yeah. So start working with utilities, and that's how I took the utility route and ended up where I am. But it's been an exciting journey, and I love energy, and I love everything I do. So it now doesn't only affect the electricity sector, but it affects the transportation sector, the building sector, the fuel sector, industry, everything and beyond. And we can transition to 100% renewables, and we can do it because it's the highest value, lowest cost possible way forward. That's fantastic. Great, great story. Great story. It is a fun story, isn't it? The African, very (laughs) colorful. And and then how did you meet our friend David Freeman? I I had the the experience of working with David for a short time. You worked with him for several (laughs) years, but how did you guys uh, meet originally? Well, he was actually lecturing at the law school and uh, Dick Ottinger, because I was the intern for Dick Ottinger, we were really good friends, said, you know, someone really obnoxious is coming to teach this time. <laughs> so I want you to just sit there in the front and see if you can irritate him. I was like, what do you want me to do? And uh, I mean, and he said, well, just, just talk to him about carbon taxes. So I did exactly that. And Dave Freeman, you know, with his strong accent and cowboy hat, just said, who is this person over there? That foreigner with an accent. <laughs> like, you have the biggest accent I've ever seen. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that Southern drawl. Uh, but we became friends and, and he said, well, fine, you know, you want to know about utilities, come work for the New York Power Authority. So that's how I met him. And I started the New York Power Authority. And uh, then, you know, uh, followed him to L.A. Uh, because I was able to be in charge of the Green L.A. program, which we worked on together. And it continues to this day as a successful initiative. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, actually, the uh, the, the inflection point, I think, what. The, the time that you were at, at LADWP and that I was there for even shorter time, but was the, I think the inflection point and now yes. LADWP is really a, a leading municipal utility. It's really exciting to see. Well, we were, you know, we were a little bit on the bleeding edge um, and we had to, we had to, you know, break some crockery in the process, but ultimately the programs remained. They were recognized on a wider global scale and uh, uh, I firmly believe that our programs in LA set the EU towards the feed-in tariff and then the feed-in tariff in return has um, resulted in California having a better scheme for renewables as well. Not not so much on the residential side uh, because we don't need incentives but certainly on the utility side. Yeah. It's been a nice competition. 
And we right. have set it all in motion, which is pretty cool. Yeah, Grad congratulations. And then, and then, <laughs> so after after LADWP, um, did you go directly to the ISO? Was that, or was there a gap no, there? No, no, no. There was a certain period um, after LADWP. You know, my heart has always been in international work, so I wanted to do a little bit more international. So I I still do participate in the World Council for Renewable Energy. And I worked and we set up the Renewables 100 Policy Institute, which was, again, a collaboration that basically focused on establishing policies that would transition us to 100 percent renewable energy in all sectors, not just the electricity sector. So that was, again, bleeding edge back in 2007 when we set up the entity and started working. Um, I also became a spokesperson for the U.S. State Department on Renewables, which was pretty exciting, um, and it still continues, which is also interesting. We went through the tumultuous years of uh, the previous administration and uh, were noticed for a few years <laughs> and continued to talk about renewables. I think they caught up with us in the last year and uh, all uh, travel ended, but it's starting up again now. And... Uh, and, and then I started with the ISO in 2011 as well. Um, and that has been very exciting. Yeah, let's, I, I know you were just appointed or reappointed to a third term by Gavin Newsom yeah. last year. Congratulations yeah. again. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for doing that. I just that. got I, confirmed a couple of weeks ago. Oh, <laughs> well, even better. Even, it's legit. It's legit after all this. It's all done. Yes. Well, I, I've heard you give, as you, I've told, talked to you about this, I've heard you give several lectures about the ISO, and I think your, your presentations are brilliant. And it only uh, makes me think about how brilliant you are because it is such a complex system. And there's so many levers. But how would you characterize the ISO? I mean, it is. Uh, why don't you just describe it to somebody that doesn't know what the ISO is? How would you describe it? Well, the ISO operates the transmission system and they operate the wholesale market. So they are, that's what the, their, the intent is. The distribution system are run by the utilities, the high voltage transmission system by the ISO. We optimize market operations as well and run the wholesale market. But what's really excited, exciting is that the California ISO as you know, the Greater West doesn't have an integrated transmission operator, um, has launched the energy imbalance market, which allows other states and other entities that are not part of the ISO, like LADWP, incidentally, LADWP officially joined yesterday, um, SMUD and others to come in and participate and gain benefits from the EIM, which is a voluntary market and um, is, is a very low cost entry that is usually recovered within less than a year and has been a net positive benefit for everybody that participates in the market. So we launched it in 2014 and November of 2014. And until now we have netted over 1.2 billion in benefits to the participating entities, which is pretty exciting as well. So low risk, right. you can exit if you want to, but there is a good benefit of optimizing the grid all across. So that regional collaboration is important for integrating renewables, especially. So as we transition into higher penetrations of renewables, it allows for more integration of renewable energy, but also as we saw post-Texas, it also enables reliability yeah, <laughs> because yeah. if you're completely disconnected from your neighbors, you can't bring in energy at critical times, you end up having to hold the bag on your own and we saw what happened. Let me, let me, let me dissect a few things because you talked about, I think, uh, the, you know, the transmission system, I think everybody understands, managing the wholesale power market. Uh, I used to like to say, and this is, I know this is outdated, I want you to update me. 
I used to say that there's about a thousand power plants in California and that the ISO figures out which one to turn on at any given point. Correct. And then how, for how much and how much to, to, to ramp it up and how much to ramp it down. So we ramp up electricity and we ramp it down depending on demand. Demand right. drives the generation and uh, that has always been the case. But we're also seeing with more renewables again and on customers' homes, that it's not necessarily demand that drives generation very soon, depending on, because we have so much penetration of solar, it's going to be generation that drives demand through um, energy services, whether it's energy efficiency or demand energy response or storage or customers being sensitive to pricing signals that are sent based on availability of energy at any certain time. And that I think is going to allow us again to transition faster and in a much more optimized fashion to renewables um, on, on all levels. And right. So now you take my well, sorry to interrupt you, but you take my yeah. thousand, you take my simplistic thousand power plant model. Yeah. And now you start layering in all these renewables from out of state and in state, and you right. layer in all the distributed generation resources Correct. and fuel cells and microturbines and every everything yeah. else, right? And that's what you're, I think in, in one of your presentations, one of your presentations, you were saying, we all need to get along. Yes. And I, th I think you were referring to the utilities and the IPPs and the ESCOs and everybody that's now in this big stew. Uh, and the individual customer, because the individual customer is now a player as well. So like I said, we need that regional horizontal collaboration for the large scale projects and to integrate renewables and optimize the system. But we also need vertical penetration all the way into the individual customer and being able to dispatch them and the resources that they have behind the meter to support the grid and also to monetize those resources for the customer and pay for those services that they're providing. So it becomes very granular and, 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 and very intricate on a vertical scale as well. So as I saw, we don't want to go all the way and penetrate behind the customer's um, uh, meter. But as you know, we had launched a program that allowed for aggregation of 500 kW or higher to participate in the wholesale um, market for the ISO. Well, FERC, the Federal Energy Commission, liked the program so much that they came out with order 2222 and said, oh, this is a great program. Why don't we make it 100 kW? So now aggregated systems of 100 kW and larger can participate and should have a path to participate in our market, which again is really quite great because this program may have given other ISOs a headache, but the ISO was like, yeah, we came up with it. Now we have to go a little bit more granular, but that's okay. Now is, um, that for, is that for generation and storage, that, that level? Yes, for behind the meter. So aggregating, either aggregating way, whatever way. you can. The third party is aggregating and then they dispatch into the market depending on what's necessary. So hopefully soon we'll be able to pay for more services that we pay for now. And we do need feedback from, from those customers. So. You want to be able to pay for resources that in, 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 that help us with ramping at the end of the day. I mean, flexibility is key. So being able to pay for flexibility and being able to pay for ancillary services as well is going to be an important component. Getting that, getting that pricing down. What's the, what's the, well, what's the, yeah, and getting it right, you know, paying enough so that the customer and the third party yeah. aggregators have an interest in participating. If we're not paying enough, like, you know, when I left DWP and we had we had the program at DWP, the solar program, which was we paid everybody a dollar a watt back then, remember? <laughs> now you can yes. buy a whole system for it, but it was a big deal if they installed a system in LA. And then yep. the Germans and the Europeans figured out, well, you know, 
paying after the system is installed is probably not the smartest way because you give all the money upfront, whatever customer picks up the systems, installs it somewhere else, and then gets the money again. Well, we had never thought of that because we hadn't considered that people <laughs> actually do that. So that's how the feed-in tariff idea was born. So why don't we pay on a per kilowatt hour generated on a monthly basis so they have an incentive not only to keep the system but operate the system? And uh, we perfected the feed-in tariff in Europe that then came back here and in the form of net metering and, and the feed-in tariff in LA. So yes, yeah, so there's going back and forth and we've all been involved in all of the programs pretty much every step of the way. <laughs> Yeah, let's um, let's talk about. I want to just ask you quickly about Texas, because that's been sort of beaten to death, and and it was what an awful thing that happened. I mean, at least yeah. eighty-two people dead, and three billion dollars worth of property damage, loss, and just a terrible situation. Is it? Is that? Um, how would you? How do you? How do you characterize what happened there? Obviously, the at first the governor came out and said it was due to the wind turbines. Later, we heard it was mostly due to natural gas uh, supply systems freezing up and controls freezing up. But how would you, as a as a as somebody who's been at the helm of the ISO, and we know that the ERCOT uh, director resigned recently? Uh, yeah, what's your and reaction the board. to that? <laughs> and the board, the whole everybody out of there. They were out of state too, the board members. They weren't even part of Texas. Well, Texas had several issues. One, they are isolated, which is a problem. So they have an isolated grid. They're not interconnected, except for small areas down in El Paso and the Panhandle. And interestingly enough, both those areas fared out pretty well because they were able to get power from the neighboring states and keep the lights on and keep the heat on. So that was one of the big problems, just that isolationist uh, attitude of not wanting to be a part of an integrated grid and rely on neighbors. So they can't import power and they cannot export power. Also bad planning and bad infrastructure planning and climate change denialism because they never thought that they would have, even though there had been warnings, that they would never have such a cold snap, which they did. And they hadn't actually proved their system to be able to withhold such low temperatures. The reason their windmills didn't work or stopped working was because they didn't have the winter package. I mean, we have windmills in Norway and in Sweden and in the North Sea working throughout the winter, right? With no issues and no problem and nothing frozen. It's because they have the winter package and they're able to, to be insulated from the cold and they use um, whatever it is, um, fluids that they need to use that can withstand the cold and don't freeze. Apparently in Texas, they didn't have that. So some of the fluids froze and the windmills weren't able to operate, but that was not their issue um, necessarily because solar performed as well and some of the wind turbines performed. What happens was their instruments froze. So it didn't matter where the power was coming from. Gas pipes froze, gas instrument froze, their nuclear power plants froze, their coal piles froze. So everything failed, nuclear, coal, and gas failed just because the instruments froze and the pipes froze. And apparently the coal piles that they had was so frozen, they couldn't break the coal out of it. Um, but then, you know, they also didn't, they didn't winterproof their, their infrastructure across the board, including the windmills. So that was poor planning. And there had been a recommendation to the Public Utilities Commission that, that ERCOT do this and that the utilities do this. And uh, because it was a recommendation and not a mandate, they ignored it. And I guess they put profits before people and that's the result you have. Um, it yeah. just takes a few days. So failures yeah. across the board of bad planning in terms of internal infrastructure, but also I think 
um, as you transition to a more evolved electricity system, not being able to rely and export and import from your neighbors puts you in peril. Right. I, I like what you said, or I, I value what you said about they just didn't, they were, they were in denial. They just didn't recognize that such a, such a cold snap or such a severe yeah. weather event could happen. And yeah. uh, I know that I brought this back. I, you know, I'm serving as a commissioner in the Glendale Water and Power now. And I, I brought this back to our utility. I mean, are, are yeah. we, have we done sufficient planning? And I guess I bring the question to you is, you know, is, has the ISO done sufficient and the, the investor-owned utilities in California done sufficient planning for these severe weather events? We try, you know, 2020 hindsight is always difficult, but what we can foresee and trying to foresee the unforeseeable to the extent that we can, we do. For us, extreme heat events are the ones where we, we see much more as a vulnerability. And extreme heat events, not just in California, but across the greater West. Because as resources start to dwindle across the greater West, it's going to be more and more difficult for all of us collectively to be able to withstand really hot temperatures unless we plan for it adequately, and we have to. So we're taking that into account. I've talked to PG&E because they're the ones that have more infrastructure in areas that freeze. <laughs> they assure me that everything that needs to be winterized has been winterized. We're not going to experience issues because of cold weather like Texas. So that for us, it's more fires and heat waves yeah. that we have to keep yeah. a focus on. And we're cognizant of climate change. We're not denying it. We understand that the Pacific Northwest hydro resources are vulnerable and that we can't over rely on them because some of it may dry up as we saw what happened in Brazil. Um, and that is an issue. We need to account for that and plan for it and figure out what we feel that need with, whether it's um, it's it's more 24 hour storage like geothermal or, or, or additional large scale pumped hydro or offshore wind. Uh, more batteries, more storage of all kinds. Uh, we're going to need to get very creative and very diversified very fast. Really well put, really well put. What's your biggest challenge at the ISO? What's my biggest challenge at the ISO? Um, I don't think it's a challenge. You know, I like to look at challenges as opportunities always. So I'm always like, what's the biggest opportunity? And the biggest opportunity that I've seen, I mean, if you look back at 2011 when I entered and, 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 and started with the ISO, it was a very parochial internal uh, oriented organization that had no ambitions beyond California, certainly didn't have a global outlook. Uh, fast forward, oh, and, and renewables, renewables were not on the map really. I mean, yes, there was a mandate, but it wasn't something where there was leadership or enthusiasm. Um, and, and now this is one of the leading ISOs globally because ISOs actually, the ISOs say, hey, look, we can transition to renewables. A kilowatt hour is a kilowatt hour. As long as we can dispatch and we've got enough of a notification like from a centralized power plant and enough reliability, we can operate the grid. It's okay. I mean, we're, we're geared up to do that. And it started with the Europeans. Uh, we embraced it, others have embraced it. Now there's an organization called Go15 which is the 15 largest ISOs in the world banding together and focusing on how you transition to renewables and yay, California leads the way. We're now president of the organization and we are recognized as experts on integrating renewables on a large scale. And um, we've become very active globally before the pandemic, almost 170 countries had come and visited the ISO to learn and to gain knowledge from our experience. So it's super exciting that yeah. we, we can not only have knowledge, but we are happy to share that knowledge 
And there's a confidence building component because when a country like Argentina, for instance, wants to decide whether they're going renewable or they're going gas, looking towards the US, looking towards California first and saying, hey, if California can do it, and what is required is, an, is you know, a modern integrated backbone grid, which the Argentinians did have, we should try to do it as well. And that pushed them over the edge to where, you know, the first meeting we had with Argentina when I visited there as part of the State Department was 2015. By 2019, they were the third largest uh, user of wind power in the world, including having brought manufacturing as well. So you can have a global impact and you can have a domino effect. And, and, and that certainly um, enables you to, to use the ISO and that platform as you know, spreading the green gospel, which we all need to embrace. Angelina, I got to tell you, um, I, I hope that your kids recognize now, they will at some point if they don't now, <laughs> but I know they're teenagers, so there are other things on their mind like surfing and video. And, but uh, I hope they recognize what their extraordinary, extraordinary mother they have and what extraordinary leader you've been. And to come from running around in little schoolyards in Africa uh, yeah. with limited electricity, limited water, and now to not only be at the helm of the California ISO, which is clearly the leader, but now the ISO is influencing all these other ISOs all over the world. Uh, I'm proud of you. I hope you, I hope you, <laughs> I, I congratulate you and, um, and, and thank you because what you're doing is really, really, really hard work for the, for the state of California. Well, world, we so. try, you know, we all want to be good examples for our kids. And, and my daughter wants to do what I do. And she's been to every energy conference that I go to and has actually started a few initiatives herself. So, you know, having a teenager that wants to be like you, I guess, is a good thing. So I'm doing something right. <laughs> you are. Hey, thanks so much for this call. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time. Uh-huh.